Welcome to Savage Minds, and I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Emma Hilton, a developmental biologist at the University of Manchester and a keen amateur sportswoman who has spent time studying sex segregation in sport, the impact of physical anatomy on performance, and the necessity for protected category for female athletes. Emma has recently published an academic review of muscle and strength retention in the suppression of testosterone by trans-identified males, and she has consulted with a major sports federation reviewing their policy for the inclusion of these males in female sport. I welcome Emma to Savage Minds. I remember how we came to speak originally. It was exactly two years ago. I went to search our tweets to each other, not our tweets, our private messages, when I came to you, when I was working on a trans sports piece for Quillette, and I reached out to you to ask you about certain data. Thank you for that again. But can you tell me what brought you to this debate about gender identity, transgender issues, about trans identified males in sports, in women's sports, and what, you know, what has driven you to this, a topic that not only has passion so high on all sides, but which is quite castigating for women? So I think that I came to this kind of accidentally um, in that it's kind of like, you know, imagine a Venn diagram with lots of overlapping characteristics that need um, someone who fits all of those maybe to have said, oh, hang on a minute. No, really, this is not. Um, happening. So, you know, 20 years ago, I didn't really think too deeply about this. I was a, a you know, you kind of standard feminist who was shouting about um, kind of pro-choice issues and, you know, this kind of thing. And um, um, so a, a kind of broadly, but not particularly politically active feminist background. Um, and then combining that as a developmental biologist where you've got this kind of very um, intrinsic or, or not intrinsic, this kind of taught awareness about how bodies are different and how, how they're different and how they become different. And, and then um, I'm, I generally like sports. I like a lot of sports. I play sports. I like watching sports. There's nothing that I think I turn off maybe skiing occasionally, but, but there's no sport. I can't sit down and actually just kind of watch. So, so you've got this kind of feminism overlapping with developmental biology, overlapping with um, a, a love of sports. And it just seemed then that when, and I, I remember, I think the first time that I thought, oh, hang on, this is not right, was, um, uh, Fallon Fox and so for those who don't know the Fallon Fox case is um, a, a transgender woman who is an ex-US Navy veteran who transitioned as a you know male to female whatever language we're using there um, who transitioned and became a mixed martial arts fighter so now, and now you have this male, not just a, a male, but a, a very strong kind of, you know, someone who's been fit and active and, and very strong for, for their entire life. Um, being in a, a ring where really it's, <laughs> it's not just a combat sport, it's, a, it's an anything goes kind of combat sport. And then, of course, the fight with Tamika Brent where um, her orbital 
socket was shattered and she needed her head stitched together or stapled together. And, and I remember looking then and thinking, I thought everyone knew that sports was kind of quite an obvious thing. It, like one could create social discussions or philosophical discussions about um, bathroom use or that kind of thing. But, but sports just always seems to me like something that would be just so obvious that, that you know, females and males need to be separated, especially in this kind of very vivid environment where a, a female is bleeding because she's been battered, that, that I thought, oh, hang on, you know, what's going on here? Is this transgender woman really comparable with a female in terms of, you know, output, performance? I knew from a developmental biology background that, it, you know, uh, you know, this male was not going to have developed along the same lines. But what happens when you change hormones? So I kind of really decided then I was going to have a look because my intuition was it's not fair. But I think my scientific brain took over and said, well, hang on, you need to, you, you can't just say stuff like it's not fair. You have, you're probably going to have to justify that at some point. So I think these three things, feminism, developmental biology, and, and really wanting, you know, females to have a fair shot at sports and not... Uh, bleed too heavily because of this so so that's that's my background here the Fallon Fox thing that was like four years ago correct yeah something like that, that feels about right yeah yeah I remember walking through a market in Islington when this happened and someone was alerting me about this and it does seem surreal that you would have a lot of left-leaning, politically left-leaning people saying that this is the humane thing to do. Because a lot of women I've spoken to told me that it was the misogyny pushing the drive to almost excitedly see men beat up women, you know? I mean, there was something symbolic about that that makes me wonder how people on the left are supporting this. Yeah, I think the, the kind of, obviously, and quite rightly, the the way that society responds to violence against women and girls and um, with the horror and you know the the sanctions and and the criminalization obviously and, and then the initiatives to help women and girls get out of this and so we have a really strong social convention that you know like men don't hit women because the the chances of them really hurting women are are, are big and um, you know this is not an equal fight we intrinsically intuitively and then seeing this being like you say not only permitted but applauded as some kind of victory that that at its basis level we as a society got to a place where we were watching like i say not just a, a not just a regular old male but a strong fit active male um with combat experience um in a ring being being uh, applauded to to punch a female in the face and i just thought this is uh, what lens are people looking at here where this is a, a a good thing this how can this be a good thing i think it's insane i mean from 2013 i've been writing about this but one thing i noticed very early on was the trans lobby's desire to glue themselves to the intersex debate and this is highly linked to the sporting debate. For instance, um, I remember back when we spoke the first time two years ago, 
you had written me a comment about what was happening conterminous to the discussion about transgender males who identify as women wanting to enter women's sports and the Castor Semenya debate. And I wanted to ask, why is the Castor Semenya debate so important to this about trans since Semenya is considered so controversial, um, especially in parallel to the story of transgender in sports. You wrote me two years ago this. I'm just going to quote you if I may. It's nothing scandalous. For instance, the IOC could have lowered the upper T limit in 400 meters, 400 um, H, what does H mean? Sorry. And 800 meters. Thank you. That's it. Hammer and pole vault. Instead, they lowered the upper T in an apparently arbitrary fashion that coincidentally, you put that word in quotes, covers all the events that Semenya competes in. Can you explain that to our audience? Because I think a lot of people don't understand the controversy around the T and the, and the intersex being conflated by the transgender lobby. So two years ago, I didn't understand and nor did the, I guess the general population who are interested in this kind of thing, um, didn't understand as much about Semenya's biology as we do now. Um, and so at that point, um, I was considering uh, the, you know, the kind of default to a simple explanation, which, which was that she's female, she's XX, she's got ovaries, and she's got high testosterone for some kind of reason. Uh, the most obvious to me was that, uh, some kind of adrenal problem um, where her adrenal glands are going to start making too much testosterone. Um, and at, at this point, where the IAAF, now World Athletics, when they, and I do, believe they pursued not just Semenya but other other women in the same position as her um, and and world athletics knew years ago what DSD Semenya had and that there were other women with the same DSD um, that they 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 created an argument where they knew that they wanted to regulate athletes and we'll come back to what how good the regulation is at some point I'm sure um, they wanted to regulate certain athletes, but instead of trying to address the, the athletes' um, biology, what they, what they did was try and create a kind of event-specific rule, which then was very clear to anyone looking, that it was, it was targeting specific athletes, and many particularly. Um, and, and that's very scientifically unsatisfactory. If, if someone has an advantage because of what you know whatever advantage wherever then then you can see that for example in this case high testosterone that leads to a performance advantage that's going to apply across the board but it's almost like i don't know if word athletics are a bit cowardly that they they didn't um want to you know just lay it on the line and say look these are women with aspects of male biology that are relevant to sport and we need to think about how we're going to regulate this. What they did was create this, what I think is a really biased study, um, trying to find advantage in, in female events. And 
ended up only being able by by some statistical trickery only ended up being able to find advantage in a certain number of events and um, but those events didn't cover every event that Castus and Manu was competing in so then they created a rule that wasn't based on on even the statistical trickery that they'd employed to find those events and so it just it was it was very obvious looking from a scientific point of view it must have been even more obvious if you were within the kind of world athletics uh, scrutiny type of environment that this was an absolute like contrived effort and so so obviously then you've got a lot of people defending Samania and and the other athletes that she represented she's taken a lot of the kind of hit from this but she was only one of a group of athletes who were challenging these rules um, so so you've got a lot of scientists saying hang on this is not right this is these rules are quite as it stands quite arbitrary they're not they're not based in any good science um, so that was the background to when we spoke explain what dsd is because a lot of people don't understand what this means for the term of intersex okay so so dsd um stands for variously depending on your preference and it, it may obviously change within context um, uh, originally defects of sex development differences of sex development some people are moving towards variations of sex characteristics so but essentially they all describe the same thing which is um, people who, uh, during their development, um, have some kind of variation from the typical pathways of male or female. Um, and so that their reproductive anatomy, their endocrinology, um, their genetics, they don't always align in, in kind of neat um, kind of order. Um, and, and so this uh, creates some unusual situations, uh, DSDs are rare, it, but it can create some unusual situations in, in sports particularly, uh, where one might try to understand, you know, sports is segregated by male or female, um, mostly on secondary sex characteristics, that is males with bigger muscles and they're taller and all those kinds of things. Um, so trying to understand DSDs, uh, which are not a monolith, they're not a, a single group that, you know, all do the same thing to a genetic male or to a genetic female. Um, trying to understand how, how performance might be affected or not affected um, can be a bit tricky. Well, I, rem I remember your piece that you wrote with Colin Wright earlier this yeah. year in the Wall Street Journal. You guys put through, you know, put forth this highly controversial theory that human beings are born of one of two sexes. This seems you're trolling me now. <laughs> yeah, well, this, this caused such an outrage, and um, and it was it was really shocking to me that people were taking up what is a given, really an incontrovertible medical fact that sex is binary, right? And so, you know. How was your article received after you two published this? I mean, were you guys pushed back upon by the Wokarati? We have, we've had lots of pushback, I have to say. I, so I'm a scientist, not a journalist. 
and as is Colin um, and we discussed briefly about what the significance of first author versus last author was in in journalism versus you know in a scientific article where where it would clearly place you in a, in a kind of hierarchy, I guess. Anyway, I, I suspect Colin, uh, well, I'm pretty sure Colin has got the most pushback from this. Um, whereas I, I kind of, yeah, it wasn't too bad if I'm honest. Um, I didn't expect it. I think as a British person as well now, Colin is American, so he will have had a much clearer idea about um, the Wall Street Journal and the placement and the readership and those kinds of things. And I'm British, I just thought we were, you know, we're writing some kind of, it was an opinion, but really is it an opinion? And so we wrote it. So I think as the kind of British half of this, I didn't really get the, um, the, the pushback that perhaps Colin as the American author did. Uh, but it's been interesting. It's been used as, um, you know, a, a kind of abuse. The Wall Street Journal is, I understand, fairly conservative and they explore some interesting ideas that aren't always um, necessarily uh, embedded in, in huge amounts of science. So they've got some track record of, you know, being kind of very open to lots of, lots of uh, kind of slightly left field stuff. Now, I'm not remotely suggesting <laughs> two scientists, an evolutionary biologist and a developmental biologist asserting the idea that sex is binary is in any way left field. Um, but what was surprising to me, that was my first, and I believe Colin's first um, movement into kind of mainstream media. And it's very different to how academia treats you where you you know there's a kind of pseudo politeness and people uh, people try and rebut what you're saying but they back it up with sources and they present you with overwhelming evidence that you're wrong uh, the wall street journal i just got called lots of names on social media and that i didn't understand um biology <laughs> that i was a disgrace to my university that that like you say that the concept of binary sex as, as if it's some kind of revolutionary um, you know, novel idea it is just insane. This is not, it's not revolutionary. It, it's evolutionary. It's not, it's not novel. It's, it's, it's essentially how we propagate ourselves as a species. This is, it's not a controversial topic. It just needed saying because it's so uncontroversial. Nobody had thought to stick their, you know, heads up there and say it before. So, so it was interesting and, you know, turf and. And in that article, the two of you developed this idea, though. I mean, that's not that is not at all controversial to anyone who studied science that humans are effectively sexually dimorphic and you you both wrote the argument is that because some people are intersex they have developmental conditions resulting in ambiguous sex characteristics the categories male and female exist on a spectrum and are therefore more than social constructs and you continue to write, if male and female are merely arbitrary groupings, it follows that everyone, regardless of genetics or anatomy, should be free to choose ident to identify as male or female or to reject sex entirely in favor of a new bespoke gender identity. 
Well, of course, this reminds me of a tweet from yesterday of Tatiana McGrath, who shows a chart about COVID victims, and it's, you know, a pie chart, roughly half male, half female, and McGrath writes, see, us non-binary types, we are superior. We completely, (laughs) what was the word, we're immune to this, which was a double entendre, of course. But I'm, I'm wondering, you know, Something in 2020, even, you know, back in 2013, I thought I was trolled by people online for saying that only females had menstruation. Now, here we are, you know, eight years later, menstruators, vagina havers, never penis havers, never scrotum hangers, never, you know, I I call them front noodlers because (laughs) we need to have something to even it out and to have light laughter. But I'm, I'm just wondering then, how is, why is it that the trans lobby has gone for intersex? Is this a political maneuvering? So my, my read of it um, is that the, the deliberate undermining of um, the, the very basic biological phenomena of male and female um is is an attempt to suggest that nobody can really say whether they're male or female and 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 there are some uh you know arguments and not you know very few of us have been carrier types and we don't know what our chromosomes are these kinds of things um so 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 it's trying to it's trying to say to people well you don't know if you're really truly female or if you're really truly male because there are some cases uh, where it's not so clear cut. Now, I said earlier, those cases are rare. Um, and, and we understand them in, in uh, you know, as these variations from, from two very well-established evolutionary, <laughs> well-established pathways. Um, that that it, it's just an attempt to say there's no such thing as a male or there's no such thing as a female. The easiest response to that I've always found is, with, you know, you, you're the product of a male and a female and only one male and only one female in a very specific conformation. That is the, the female that you came from made an egg and the male that you came from made a sperm. And those two got together one to one only an egg and a sperm, not two sperms, not two eggs. Um, and, and so this is, I think people, what am I trying to say here? The people are trying to undermine something which is self-evident as a, as, as a project of their own selves. They are only here because males and females exist. Um, so, it, so it's always seemed to me a very... Uh, ridiculous argument the the better argument better being relative is is how we understand males and females within society and and where there are exceptions where there are uh, legal definitions that don't necessarily map to biological definitions um but the but the whole kind of sex doesn't really exist it's just patiently looking up your own family tree absolutely nonsense also that plus the fact that when they reach out for that argument, often the trans advocates, both trans people and their allies, reach for the, well, there are women who are six feet, five 
and seven feet tall. Okay, yeah, sure, they're anomalies. And then they go to, but we could argue that all sports people are just freaks. Have you seen that quote? Everyone who's in sport is just freaky. They all have freaky bodies. Some, and people referred to Michael Phelps. Uh, apparently he has some kind of special deal with his shoulders that are hyperextended. Don't ask me. I, I don't follow Michael Phelps. Um, but, you know, I've seen all these arguments to basically say that because there are women who are six foot ten, that they should, I mean, there's two various arguments out there for this, but about two. One is, well, that she could actually become, a, you know, be considered a man because she has all these male secondary characteristics and on the other hand, they say, well, that just is proof that sex is fluid. Well, I think they're two, they're two slightly different um, frameworks. So, so fluid implies some ability to change. And I think that that's... No, let's... Okay, scrub that. <laughs> so there's two slightly different uh, frameworks there. Uh, the first is that one would judge sex which which in evolutionary and developmental terms is defined as your role in reproduction whether you fulfill that role or not whether you choose to fulfill that role or whether you are unable to fulfill that fulfill that role um that that it's defined as it really is just whether you're going to be a mum or a dad whether you're going to produce an egg or a sperm or if you're a plant you're going to produce an ovule or a pollen you know um so that, it's as simple as that. It's a very basic definition. It should be entirely neutral. It shouldn't mean anything about anyone's life, etc. Um, what we have with secondary sex characteristics are not characteristics that are necessary to that reproductive role. Um, they're not directly involved in making eggs or sperm or making them come together. Uh, no pun intended. Um, but, but, but are improving your fitness about being selected to be the male who provides a sperm or to be the female who is, you know, the subject of male attention and whose eggs are um, competitively advantageous in that sense. Um, so secondary sex characteristics are a little more blurry, a little more overlapping. But they also exist because they're results of the the ova and the sperm for instance absolutely so so everything is a hierarchy when you know from seven weeks in utero when your gonads these are you know tiny little balls of cells that are a bit a bit like skin cells not quite but that kind of you know type of tissue these little balls in your abdomen just decide well they don't decide but you know they've got genetic information to tell them you're going to start making start becoming a testicle or you're going to start becoming an ovary and that's really the very first thing that happens some people will argue that the genetic information that you acquire at conception is the first thing that happens but these are these are really very tiny nuances within the whole context and it's comically the very first thing that happens is is your body decides whether you're going to be ultimately as I say, whether you fulfill that role or whether you're unable to because of various, you know, injuries, disease, that kind of thing, whether you're going to make sperm or whether you're going to make eggs. And everything follows from that. Once you've, once your, once your gonads have said, we're going to be testicles or we're going to be ovaries, then your 
body plan, your internal genitalia, so females that's uterus and fallopian tubes and cervix, that kind of thing, and in males, um, uh, vas deferens, so the tube that takes sperm, you know, from the testicles to the penis. Um, all of these things follow on from that. It's a cascade of, of developmental events that all rely on that, that first primary switch. And then, so that's your reproductive anatomy set up. And when you're born, that's very um, easily and reliably observed. Um, and, and, and Not assigned. Not assigned. No, no, the, the link between um, what genitalia, what external genitalia you present at birth and, and your future reproductive potential is, is an incredibly um, high correlation. You're listening to Savage Minds. We hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We depend on listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. Any trans advocates state, I'm sorry, I'm having to go through this with you. I know you're going to crack up here, but they, you know, the typical go-to now would be for me to say, but in the womb, I was exposed to... Androgen insensitivity syndrome. That's it. Androgen insensitivity syndrome. Thank you. What is, why are trans advocates reaching for that one? Because that hasn't actually been proven to my knowledge. It's a no, 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 it absolutely hasn't. And so androgen insensitivity syndrome is a, a biology where you have an XY embryo. So would, would uh, typically develop into a healthy male. Uh, but you have a situation where that embryo can't respond to testosterone. Uh, which is the hormone that drives a lot of male development. So, so what you have is an embryo that's developing and at seven weeks it, it switches on testicle development and it starts to make testosterone, but it can't respond to testosterone. And so, so as a result of that, the embryo in terms of its um, external genitalia uh, looks uh, completely female. Would, would be observed at birth as female with, with no problem. Uh, or, you know, with no clue that there was anything wrong. In fact, most uh, women with complete androgen sensitivity syndrome don't, don't know that there's anything atypical about their bodies until they, they fail to menstruate, kind of, you know, in a timely fashion. Um, so, so this has been, my understanding is from just reading various, Twitter account is that this has been taken up. If testosterone is the thing that makes you masculine, it masculinizes your body uh, in terms of reproductive anatomy, which is certainly true. Um, and, and we know that brains respond to hormones. But if your brain doesn't respond to testosterone because you have some kind of insensitivity to testosterone, then your brain cannot be masculinized. And therefore, your brain is feminized. Now, this is the line of thought. I don't, I don't think there's, there's much scientific data to back it up. Because the, the logical outcome of that would be that women with complete androgen insensitivity syndrome, that is women who have absolutely no response to testosterone in any part of their body, which would include their brain, 
that they should be the ultimate like feminine kind of character do you understand that they that yeah, if, if yeah. they have absolutely no response to testosterone they must be uber feminine and actually you know they're just normal personality bearing they're not going around the world <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so i don't really buy you know there, there is some there is there is brain response to hormones but but pursuing the idea that uh, that an intersex disorder would lead to trans, uh, you know, or, or some kind of gender identity uh, just seems to fall at all kinds of hurdles. Well, there's also another question that I've been niggled by from the very beginning of this, of my entry into this debate. I say this all the time. I think it even when I'm not saying it, but what in the heck does it mean to feel feminine these are social constructions. What does it mean to have a female brain? Uh, you know, I've interviewed Cordelia Fine. I've read Spelka. You, you know, there's just a body of evidence by scientists who had to push back against what Steven Pinker and Baron Cohn did in the 90s, which was to sort of foment this space of, well, there really is a gendered brain. Now, I have real issues when I hear people categorizing what is a woman's brain without any first evidence of what that means, what it implicates within society or for the self. I mean, like you say, is a woman who has this insensitivity supposed to be just fainting on the streets and people come up <laughs> with smelling salts and give her taffeta dresses and she's running around like Scarlett O'Hara in Gone with the Wind? I mean, what does this mean to be ultimately feminine and inversely i'd say the opposite uh, which is true to my life i learned femininity not from women i learned femininity from men i learned femininity quite a bit from men when i was living in the arab world because there's a certain femininity that i personally key key into because the kind of femininity i don't find um for lack of a better word, vomitatious. I'm not one of these people who fares well, never was, when like in high school, I'm American, uh, girls would show me their boyfriend's uh, sport ring. I, I don't even know the term, see, I can't even say it. I didn't like say it. Like the class right. ring. But that's it, the class, you see, you know it better than me. I would I've be grown like, up on American, so. like, day Yeah, coaches. yeah, so you know. You watch, Bay, you know, Baywatch. Well, you know, the thing is, is I was just like, who cares? Like, that did not interest me. Did that not interest me because I don't have enough feminine hormones in me? Or is it just part of my personality, which is what I suspect? Um, and again, you know, you're a scientist and... You are not a front noodler. So how are we supposed to make, I mean, should I believe you? Should I believe anything you say? Because you have a female brain? You see what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think, me. I think there's some nuance here. And, and as ever, you know, when you, when you read on social media and the various battles of essays and that kind of thing, um, this idea that either we are blank slate um, and that everything we, every behavior that we exhibit has been taught to us or socialized into us consciously or subconsciously um, versus uh, a very kind of innate uh, masculine, feminine 
brain. I think there there is a middle ground. I'm, I'm not suggesting it's exactly in the middle, but I think there's something in between there somewhere. Um, so I would argue something like testosterone, if you have lots of testosterone, like males do, that this has an evolutionary benefit. Uh, that it, it, you know, it makes you, first of all, it changes your body, it makes you fast and strong, so you can go and hunt lots of, I don't know, lions or <laughs> more likely kind of bison or something like that. But, um, yeah, yeah. But, it may, it, but it also means that, for example, your reaction times are quicker, you're perhaps a bit more aggressive. I think that that, that biolo biological reality can exist, that testosterone does have an effect on behaviour, but that the manifestation of that behaviour can be socialised. So in you know, today's society where, where we kind of uh, privileged white Westerners <laughs> don't have to hunt for our meat, um, the, we still have the, the you know, males with aggressive traits. Now, many males will channel that into, uh, you know, spending uh, lots of their company's money on a stock exchange in a risky trade deal, and they'll get, you know, the massive rush off that. They may invest that aggressive risk-taking behaviour into a, a, a dodgy relationship. They may manifest it in violence against their, their female partner. Those, those are choices that society and how people are socialised to behave happen. But the base permissive factor is that males are naturally, evolutionarily designed to be aggressive risk takers. Like I say, how that manifests is, I think, socialisation. Well, when you were going through the list of examples of aggression, uh, I was thinking also... The way, yes, that men socially, acceptably so, are able to express themselves, such as the infamous midlife crisis, Corvette, or whatever sports car. Recently, however, it's been suggested by many feminists that the postmodern version of this is, but I'm a lady. And I was thinking about this in terms of also how you were positing this with you know, the, the larger scope of male aggressivity. Because much of the lefty, you know, supporters of this kind of identification as a woman or identification as a man process are viewing this as courageous, brave, um, true self. You've heard all that nonsense. Uh, but I do think that there's something quite aggressive about it because who's in the crosshairs of this movement are women, children as well, but primarily women. And there seems to be something quite aggressive about the way this lobby has taken on, like the IOC, uh, look at, I, I will say his name, but Joanna Harper isn't doing this by coincidence. I've seen so many well-placed trans scholars who are out there churning the trans production theory machine. And it bothers me as a scholar myself, because I'm like, wait, queer theory has its uses. Back in 92, there were some excellent books and it was more about mainstreaming gay desire. It was just called queer, maybe because that was also a way in a prudish culture like my own where sex means, <laughs> we can't say that word in front of the kids, they would say gender 
uh, and that's where the solipsism has come in there as well, but also in terms of, of this late 20th century culture wanting to affirm everyone's happiness and we're all like creating this community and somehow we got lost between where science lines up certain truths that we need to benefit our bodies and our lives and on the other hand where it's inconvenient because well george wants to be georgina and i think i should support her in this process so that is brave not scientists saying but hold on there is something behind the fact that maybe men getting women's blood for a transfusion might cause them harm because there are real somatic differences between the sexes. Yeah, I think, um, and I'm not the, the kind of best place to just to have like a long view on uh, politics and political systems. And um, it seems that there's been a bit of a coming together. So if we, if we take the, the kind of, and I agree with you, I think this, I think we have to be careful in the sense that I, I, I think that, you know, I can understand that gender dysphoria is a thing. I think part of that is because I'm female and we've grown up with understanding, you know, like hating our bodies and that kind of thing. And, and so I do understand that someone can really hate, they can look in the mirror and just really, uh, not just hate, but be disgusted feel alienated from their bodies and um, so I do think gender dysphoria is a thing and we, we need to kind of probably be quite sympathetic and try and try and work through that as, as something quite different to you know the 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 like you say the what what most of us would characterize as a, a midlife crisis probably also just a time that I don't know, males just want to experiment with their sex life because they have some kind of internalized, you know, homophobia from, you know, expressing themselves when they were younger, I don't know. Um, but it, it does come at a time where the left, the political left seem to have embraced the idea that um, the individual is is the key unit in a, in a political ideology. and. And that what the individual, and we're talking about any individual now who, who makes demands about their own kind of state rather than what I, my traditional understanding of the left is, is kind of classes that, you know, uh, hierarchies, whether those hierarchies need to exist, but, but do they exist and how power is moved through those hierarchies. The, the, the movement of the left towards a, towards a position that I would traditionally consider quite a conservative position, the individual over you know, a group. And um, these, these two things suddenly in this last five years, or like you say, you, you've been around this discussion a lot longer than I have, the last 10 or longer years um, in, in mainstream, we're, we're, you know, we can talk about feminists, you saw this coming a long, long time ago. And um, it just sort of collided in a way that means we, that we, we don't really have, we're kind of blindsided aren't we that that how are, how are the political left favoring the individual over the class which and by you know i mean kind of male as the kind of dominant class here um they're favoring individual males over the traditionally subordinated class females um, and but saying that that must take precedent which you're right does feel and and one and people do argue 
quite reasonably that that looks like a, a kind of invasion, a colonization, a, a, an act of aggression. And, and we wouldn't let it happen. It wouldn't be happening with any other group of, you know, I suspect you're not um, overly <laughs> keen on defining kind of oppressor and oppressed classes. But, but we wouldn't let it happen with any other of these traditionally defined uh, power structures. So why is this happening for, for males and females where, where suddenly I'm talking with males who have fathered children who are saying that there's no difference between me, uh, you know, a very typical average female, that there's no difference, there's no physical difference and I have no recourse to, to argue that there's a physical difference and that maybe I might need in certain circumstances some kind of special consideration. Not much, but sometimes I might need some special consideration. It's just, it's, it's, a, it's an insane collision of the left having completely lost its head. And then, and then this age old, you know, misogyny or aggression, male aggression, that kind of thing. It, it's just collided in this extreme. The hyper atomization of individuals is something that, you know, the, the, the focus on individualism as well is something we heard from Margaret Thatcher. Today, this is being echoed by the left, so it's quite disturbing to me. Another thing that's also disturbing is that these people pick and choose what science is real. Ask any of them if COVID is real, and I, I dare say we wouldn't see mm, COVID is on, a, um, is on a scale. It's a gray zone. Well, sure, the readings maybe from the P PCR tests are on a scale, but the actual... <laughs> disease itself is not invented. You know, I was assigned COVID at cough or whatnot. And here we have <laughs> something that's still very much under investigation since COVID is so new, whereas human dimorphism is not. But and we have... They, they don't disagree, they, the other side. Yeah, 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 yeah. They don't disagree that science is real. They, they like the scientific articles, and I'm fairly neutral to those scientific articles that say, you know, here's a, here's a, here's a proof that gender identity for some people exists, that we can detect it in some kind of molecular signature. I'm kind of uh, hypothesizing that, but we can detect it in some people in some kind of genetic background or some kind of brain function or whatever. I'm entirely neutral to, to some people feeling gender identity and, and that being a part of their biology. So, so the other side likes that science. What they say is that that's real science. What they ignore is, is a billion years of evolution, the evidence of their own eyes, the evidence of their own mum and dad, to say that that science isn't real. And and there's a balance here. Science is always a bit of a kind of how much is on one side, how much is on the other, what position are we taking right now, how do we move forward, how do we close gaps, how do we find flaws and close those gaps. It's just a complete like rejection of, of science that nobody's ever even thought to question. The problem of finding a reference that says, you know, humans come in male and female form because nobody, I said earlier, nobody ever thought to write that because it was it's so self-evident. So they do believe in science, just not the science that is the massive weight of evidence that they, that they don't like. 
Well, one, one burden on them to prove is the existence of gender identity, which, yes, might be hard to prove, but it is not proven as yet. And I do, I, I, a feeling is not proof. I can have a feeling that I should own Buckingham Palace because I, let's say I like it or whatnot. I mean, that's not proof. And we can go over land reform and, and, and problems of capitalism and who should or should not own land. But when we come to what words mean, right, that becomes also a space of play, which is why I, I started asking you about intersex, because one of the reasons that many people don't understand why intersex is playing such a, a, a role by the trans lobby in sports is because of the two assignations of intersex. I'm going to say two. I mean, one could say there are more, but I'm thinking of Anna Foster Sterling's definition of what intersex means and what... Leonard Sachs has detailed as intersex. And he says, I'm quoting him, using Fausto Sterling's definition of intersex as, quote, any deviation from the platonic ideal. She lists the following conditions as intersex. I'm not going to read them all, but she goes through congenital adrenal hyperplasia, other non-XXXY excluding Turner and Kleinfelter syndromes, Turner syndrome, and he goes through a long list here. And, but then he says, the chief problem with this list is that the five most common conditions listed are not intersex conditions. If we examine these five conditions in more detail, we will see that there is no meaningful clinical sense in which these conditions can be considered intersex. So then he deconstructs what she calls the, the deviation from the platonic ideal. Because he says the, this deviation is not a clinically useful criterion for defining medical conditions like intersex. So why is it now that intersex has become this hot topic debate within the transporting world? And why are some conditions that are not intersex being strangely co-opted by the transgender sports camp? What's in it for them? So what's, what's in it for the... Um for trans women who want to compete in female categories is the solution that was proposed for hyperandrogenic females um, and, and for women who are genetically male with high testosterone. So, so the, the pragmatic solution that was proposed by World Athletics, uh, well, the IOC, the International Olympic Committee first, and then World Athletics, is that if advantage is mediated by testosterone, um, and here are some women who have some male traits, and that says nothing about their legal or social, like, you know, identity or, or that kind of thing, but who biologically have male traits which involve high testosterone, then, then it seems very intuitive to say, well, if we reduce testosterone, then that advantage will um, be lost. Now, develop, in terms of development of biology, that makes absolutely no sense. There's no necessary symmetry in uh, high testosterone causing X and then low testosterone removing X. There's, absolute, there's, there's no precedent for that to be a, a given. Um, uh, but but this solution that was brought about, and I think there are with with women with DSD, so women who might be genetically male and who might have testes and who are, are pumping out testosterone, 
who from a developmental biology point of view, one might describe as male. And there is, there are some social factors that, that enter here, you know, that these women have understood themselves to be female, that they have grown up, you know, under the same uh, kind of pressures that, that females do. So, so I am, I'm aware that there is, there are some kind of non-physical reasons to try and, try and discuss rules around uh, uh, women with DSDs. But what, what the, the solution that was, that was come up with to, to enable these women to compete was to lower testosterone. Um, and that would make everything, any advantage uh, be, would be removed then. And that seems to have, I guess, kind of logically, um, but then been, you know, promoted quite heavily that, that why, why if you've got a, an XY, genetic male with testes who makes testosterone and who is androgenized who is responding it's certainly through puberty with you know increased muscle and that kind of thing if lowering testosterone works on that body why doesn't it why how can you discriminate between that body and the body of a, a healthy male now i could think of 10 arguments why those two situations aren't comparable but i'm not entirely sure if I can speak really, like plainly, I'm not entirely sure that the IOC, World Athletics, um, other major sports events were kind of, you know, I think they were caught a bit on the back foot here. And so, so trying to regulate doping in the female category, trying to regulate um, the occasional XY woman in the female category, trying to understand how that DSD impacted on performance, and regulating for that and then and these regulations just seem to have been repurposed for healthy males as if you know that they if they were going to work on one group then they must work on the other group and actually what what i'm finding and what you know i've published a paper this year that's or a review rather the solution doesn't work the solution isn't isn't working let alone this conflation of categories. The, the solution that was proposed for one, for one of these groups of people is unlikely to be working. Um, so, so it's advantageous because the rules were already established for uh, women with male kind of biology in sports. Um, so it just seemed very easy to transfer it to transgender women. And, and now this has been retroactively fitted to be an inclusive you know, um, initiative as if fairness and safety are not <laughs> not a priority. This is also the recent rulings by World Rugby and then uh, other rugby associations nationally. It's, it's really a battleground for wokeness. I mean, we were happy with some of the decisions being made to protect not only women's bodies, which is probably the number one issue, physically but number one issue politically is how long have women had to fight i mean mm. women weren't even allowed in marathons until the 1970s when you start to add up i've spoken to some of the school girls in connecticut who are out scholarships in a country where paying for university is more than paying for a house in most parts of the country have you seen, um, so there's a court case in Idaho at the moment. It's probably going to go all the way through um, the, the legislature. 
um, in the States, um, which, which is to prevent, you know, males competing in female sports. And it's, it's defending females who should not be advantaged because of their sex under a, a federal law called Title IX. So, so, so this, this case has attracted a lot of attention because it's quite bold. You know, we've seen the amount of um, abuse that World Rugby got for, for being as bold and saying transgender women can't compete in the female category, a, a elite kind of World Rugby governed competition. Um, so, so this Idaho case was passed um, and, and so transgender girls uh, you know, in any federal funded school uh, couldn't compete with females. And it's been challenged and, it, and the, the, the law has been kind of suspended pending further legal investigation. And what we've seen are various kind of expert opinions and some, some really lovely writing <laughs> from Today, or yesterday, I think I saw it, a group of athletes who are certainly um, diverse in their sexuality, who are certainly uh, diverse in their racial makeup, who are certainly covering an awful lot of sports, who are all female, who talk about the value of sports. And I, I agree with nearly every word they say that sports is important. It is important for physical and mental well-being. It is a route from poverty. It is a route from gangs, from bullying, from drugs, for, you know, it creates a positive body image. It, it teaches our girls to be competitive, <laughs> to, be, to be a bit aggressive, to be strong, to, you know, to be leaders, to be confident, this kind of thing. And all these wonderful words coming from really quite famous female athletes, but in support of transgender girls. And, and the, the, the complete disconnect from, from saying transgender girls deserve the benefits of sport, but in doing so, you necessarily remove opportunity from from girls, from females, is something that I really struggle to, to comprehend that, you know, if you're, uh, all of these women benefited from Title IX and then suddenly they're, they're saying that Title IX should apply to anyone who says they're a girl rather than female. You mentioned the Idaho Title IX case and that came up on my radar because I've written a lot about the sports issue. Yeah. Uh, one senator, and it's invariably in America, it's always the Republicans, but Mike Lee and then another Republican, Kelly Loeffler, they've spoken out about withholding federal funds from schools that allow transgender identified males to participate in women or girls sports and Lee stated recently this is not about being transphobic or having anything against transgender persons this is a simple question of fairness and physical safety so you know you just spoke about this disconnect from a lot of these female athletes that signed on to a letter supporting these males and female sports why do you think there's such a disconnect where Everyone on all sides of this debate agrees that sports have their advantages. 
even for male athletes, uh, from self-esteem, physical, psychological, economic advantages. Still, we are seeing so many famous female athletes kowtow to these male athletes who identify as transgender, but they themselves, these women athletes signing on to support them have benefited from Title IX. I mean, it's quite a paradox that many of them signing onto this letter would be even unknown had it not been for Title IX. Why do you think this is happening? Um, so my, my answer to that is kind of one of bafflement because I really don't have a, a good insight into what's going on in, in these women's minds. And, and we are talking about very high profile sports women um, who, who obviously feel, you know, generally as sports people do, they have some public duty to promote, you know, a fairer kind of more just society and, and often, you know, run uh, foundations and charity work that incorporate those kinds of values. Um, I, I feel that you're right, that understanding Title IX, which uh, my understanding is uh, nobody should be um, disadvantaged because of their sex, certainly uh, no federally run programs and those that are in receipt of federal funding can disadvantage anyone uh, for their sex and that obviously manifests as female only sports as has been the traditional division um, and and when you speak with sports women who get this they are equally as baffled as I am and and the only answer that we we come up with is that this is a, a social movement where perhaps people aren't they're kind of disconnected from the the value of sports for females and I don't know where that disconnect has happened I, I genuinely don't know because like you say they, they themselves have benefited from dedicated programs dedicated categories from you know dedicated money to to support them in their often brilliant careers and and I can kind of see the the desire to share that with as many disadvantaged people as possible but when it comes to sports the disadvantage is is very clearly along sex lines and, and we can think about other ways to boost, you know, other disadvantaged groups. And we know that trans people are disadvantaged in sports in the social sense, in the way that their uptake in sports is very low. Um, they, they tend as a, a cohort to avoid exercise, particularly trans women who don't want to become particularly muscular, you know, uh, there are kind of aesthetic concerns about uptake in sports. Um, there are ways that we can support uh, better inclusion of, of trans people that I don't think um, need to simultaneously or concurrently disadvantage females. So, so there are many kind of arguments about, or not arguments, you know, debates about how best to categorize. And that is what we're talking about here. We're talking about how best to categorize people within sports. We're not talking about excluding anyone from sports. We're talking about categories that are fair for all participants. Um, but there, there seems to be problems along the, the way. The most obvious 
default kind of state would be to have a an open category where um you know it's it's a kind of open competition and your your sex is irrelevant to your entry in that category and um, whether that sits uh, alongside a male and female category or whether that actually replaces the male category I don't I don't know what the answer is there and there are arguments for both um, uh, you know we could conceive of various scoring and point systems uh, the kind of handicapping system that you see in many many sports competitions um, so, so there are ways that we can consider the, the needs of trans people. And I, I agree with, with anyone who says, you know, who talks about the value of sports um, for, for one's kind of personal growth and development. Um, we can think about ways to include trans people that don't automatically disadvantage females. It seems to me, as I noted recently on social media, you know, for this lobby that's pressing, again, not all its members are doing this, but there's a political push in recent years to propagate the fiction that sex is on a, you know, on a spectrum and that, you know, trans people are non-binary, blah, 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 but they go into specifically binary sports divisions. And as many women have noticed when they suggest what you have just suggested, let's have a category where people who identify as any of this umbrella, under this umbrella, can enter, the pushback is immediately no, TWAW. And there yes. we go into this vicious hamster wheel, which I loathe because it becomes very clear to me what I didn't want to believe at the beginning when I entered this <laughs> research, that there's a certain political ethos to push women from their own constructed and well-established rights that they have fought for arguably centuries because sports was, you know, the tail end of what during the French revolution was political voice, public space and so forth. Mm -hmm. And I do have to wonder why this has happened. I mean, we've seen recently, uh, you know, I'm working on a piece now about institutional capture where organizations like Stonewall in the UK or in the US were other organizations that were previously lesbian, gay, bisexual oriented, took on the T and have almost uniquely become about the T. And this institutional capture has gotten to the point that if you go onto certain websites, even Barclays at one point had the Stonewall logo, and it's all about showing their public, their consumers, that they too are woke. And I know, you know, I hate that word at this point. Is it overused or are we just <laughs> seeing it too much? Like we're seeing wokeness everywhere. So it's sort of silly to say, uh, you know, I don't like the word woke, but the reality is that this is institutional capture. It's everywhere. How many of your colleagues, you're at a, a major British university, how mm -hmm. many people in the sciences actually believe that sex is on a spectrum? So it's, it's not a subject that um, would generally come up, uh, not, not for any fear, particularly on my part. I mean, I, I discuss, you know, my kind of political ideas, obviously, with my close colleagues and friends. Um, and I, I certainly don't get uh, any pushback. Um, and lots of, you know, you, we're talking about developmental biologists and a lot of medics. So, so sex is is a very basic fact of life for us and um, we see it every day in a lab 
Uh, we see it every day in clinics. We understand, certainly in, in the medical field, how sex is relevant for diagnosis, for prognosis, for treatment. We're seeing in the current you know, COVID pandemic, how outcomes are very different between males and females. So, so I think because it, it's one of those things that I think biologists and medics perhaps have never needed to state because it's just one of those self-evident things. And when you look for, I get asked quite a lot for um, quotes, for citations from textbooks or from, from papers to say that, you know, sex is binary. I don't think anyone's ever thought to, to frame it. You know, it, you, you just, you talk about males and females and it's assumed as a base level of knowledge, which I think it is, you know, from very young childhood. And um, so, so it's very difficult to find these kind of quotes that apparently support a, a, a very evident fact of life, not just in humans, but in almost all kind of complex species. Um, so, so I don't see too much kind of discussion of this at work. But when I do bring it up, it is, you know, I, I have a large amount of agreement. The occasional person saying, oh, but what about this? And then, you know, you, you explain what, or I would explain what I think. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, and then I kind of get you. Um, but like I say, this is a very STEM-led kind of collective of people that I talk with. And I, I couldn't uh, tell you how it's working in the humanities, for example. Right. Well, ironically, I'm coming from the humanities yeah. and social sciences where the philosophical groundwork was laid many years ago. And it didn't just stem from, let's say, Butler's work or Sedgwick's work, um, uh, Eve Kosofsky Sedgwick, who wrote Epistemology, uh, Epistemology of the Closet or any of those who were writing sort of literary interpretations of what was homosexuality. Sedgwick's work was excellent. She did a whole analysis of Victorian literature showing how men express their homosexual love for each other through their wives. You know, it was sort of Boston marriage, okay. 19th century style. But, you know, the, the, the irony is that the humanities were a field for opening up certain discussions that were necessary. My God, post-colonialism is a necessary discussion that we've had to have in Western societies because of the horrors of just think of 1947 and the separation mm -hmm. of India, how violent that was. I mean, these there's some great benefits to what some people call, you know, toxics, uh, postmodernism. Okay, but what's really shocking to me as someone who's coming from this and I've taught queer theory I taught queer theory when it was about desire homosexual desire within cinema and cultural studies so mm -hmm. is where the shark was jumped I mean certainly most people studying romantic literature are not versed in evolutionary biology or any form of biology yet this was put out there as you know, in the late 90s, especially when I started to see more that sex is whatever you feel it is, you know, and, and there's a, a solipsism happening between academic disciplines that actually have no training in what they claim to have training in, right? Like, shouldn't literary theorists stick to literature and <laughs> scientists stick to science? Okay. I mean, when I go to my doctor and my doctor opens up, you know, David Copperfield, I will start to worry. So... I just, you know, 
really worry about the human rights of actual women and girls being caught up in this. Obviously, the Kira Bell ruling certainly invokes another level of worry, a deeper worry for children. But there's certainly this kind of sloppiness that has been allowed to take place. Uh, you know, I focused oh, one article on Davina Cooper's work, and she's a law researcher who's, you know, I'm sure has done great work uh, previous to this whole gender ideology research, but we're seeing people get hundreds of thousands of research funds for identity. And obviously mm -hmm. this will have a knock-on effect, including in the sciences. Michael Biggs's work, another who worked on the fakery of suicide stats. How can we repair this? Because it seems to me we're in this mess with science and the humanities because of spillover where people with even, you know, PhDs are allowed to write papers, have them published, are allowed to receive three quarter million of pounds of research to buttress a narrative that is wholly unsubstantiated. Do we go back to the grant givers? Do we have to go back to a, a forum like Sage for COVID and have an examination of how this kind of intellectual malaise has been fed for at least two decades? Well, I think certainly in the UK, and as you know, we are widely regarded as the, the global center for, for pushback against this with all of the abusive terms that that accrues um, aimed at oneself or indeed in complaints to you know one's institute. Um, I think in the UK we are starting to see what I would just call kind of common sense. Now I understand that common sense isn't always you know something that one follows slavishly as being correct but starting to see some kind of common sense talking some plain talking almost uh you know putting the brakes a little bit on this what i agree with you seems to be a kind of runaway um switch in in how people think or at least um for those who don't think it an attempt to ensure that they behave as if they do think it um so in the uk we have had some consultations you will notice some consultations about how uh, trans people are recognised legally, and the, the the current Conservative government uh, assessed those responses and and decided that self-identification of, of gender in a way that would allow you to alter your legal sex, that is the sex that you would uh, then have on your birth certificate, they decided that that was a step too far, and that sex did have some meaning and we're seeing our current uh, women's minister Liz Truss make some very reassuring noises um, that she supports or you know that she understands that the, the female body is something different to the male body and it has some specific needs in some specific context which is mirrored in in our equality act actually which is that largely you're not allowed to discriminate based on sex you're not allowed to discriminate based on sex, you know, when someone's coming for a job interview with you or, or when you're allocating them medical care or housing, except when it's really important that, that one of the sexes, and we're talking about usually here females, when one of the, the sexes has been disadvantaged in some way or will be disadvantaged by failure to discriminate. So we see this in, in sports, you're allowed to discriminate in sports. Uh, you're allowed to discriminate where it's important for female safety. 
so we would think about things like um, shared overnight accommodation. You're allowed to ensure that people who are sharing, you know, a dormitory in a youth hostel are allowed to be all female. Um, so you're allowed to legally exclude males in, in those kinds of situations in, in prisons is another key area for, you know, that it's really important for female safety that males are excluded, certainly from the, you know, shared living quarters. Uh, I would probably argue that we, we should exclude male prison officers from female prisons as well. Uh, but that, that may be another story. Um, so we are starting to see some recognition, some reaffirmation, if you like, of, of our Equality Act, which does recognise that female body is different and we, we have specific needs that can be justified in, in some very, what, what I would say are very intuitive circumstances, but obviously in law they need to be, you know, written down in, in proper words. A, a problem that comes from this is understanding what those words mean and what, what, what does the word female mean? What does the word woman mean? because these are the words that are used in, in our laws and those uh, around the world. And I think when these acts were written, our Equality Act is from 2010, that, that this situation that we exist in now where the word, certainly the word woman has been stretched, um, and now we're seeing that the word female is, is being uh, undermined, is, is being questioned as, as if biological fact is not, you know, a, a real uh, phenomenon. And so, so we're seeing a kind of assault on something like our Equality Act that's very indirect. And, and it's, it's making it difficult to understand how and when those laws apply, because of course, the, the mantra, and it is a mantra, it's a slogan, that trans women are women, um, completely uh, prevents you from separating females for whom I believe, you know, the spirit of the word woman was intended in these laws. Um, it, it's intended to just uh, stop you recognizing females as, as a, uh, you know, one half of, of this population and a half that have some specific needs. So it's a very indirect, it's very sneaky, it's very backdoor, I think, that if you cannot argue as I don't think many would that females are discriminated against in many aspects of society, whether that's um, intentional, whether it's violently so. Um, you, it would be very difficult to say that that doesn't happen. So, so the way to argue that females don't get protection is to say that there's no such thing as a female. Well, this is what some athletes who have written may have stated. There, I had a a male Olympic athlete who was really outraged by what was going on. And he said, I couldn't believe this was even happening. He thought it was sort of like the onion, you know, when he first read about it, he thought yeah. it was a joke article. And men are seeing this men who do the types of sports where bodily injury is even current amongst themselves. And I kept thinking about this. I was thinking, well, isn't this fascinating that the very idea of women's being contested in terms of sports, but yet these very same male athletes 
who have done sports like boxing have benefited from divisions. I mean, boxing traditionally had like eight divisions based on weight. Yes. You rarely saw someone in the super featherweight category demanding to be in the heavyweight category because discrimination, right? And as many feminists and uh, well, many sports people have pointed out that some of these men arguing to bust into women's divisions are simply mediocre to bad sportsmen. Uh, both in the term of when we say, you know, you're a bad sport, it means about you're not a good loser, and in terms of athletic ability. And certainly, there's a lot of credence to this theory, right? Because these mm-hmm. are males who are not excelling in their category, right? So I think there are there are some kind of nuances to understand. And I think that it is absolutely true that a less good male will be relatively better within a female category than, than that person would be in a male category. Uh, whether someone would ever take advantage of that in a very deliberate, I am going to cheat by doing this. Um, I don't know. I don't think we need to um, we need to impute any motive. If it happens, it happens. It doesn't really concern me why it happens. And um, what what concerns me about why it might happen is that we we know that internationally sports is is a very dark world when you dig into what actually goes on. Uh, you know, within countries, within countries that force their athletes to do um, certain things. But you know, notably. The, the big doping scandals in the, the kind of Eastern Bloc, um, former communist countries in, in Europe and Russia. Well, Russia is still continuing uh, into modern times. So we know that states will use sport as a political tool. Um, the whole Eastern Bloc intent was to, to become good at sports and that would improve their you know, political standing within, within global, uh, within a, you know, in a global community. And so we know that states will force athletes to do things, even if the athletes themselves are, are, are not particularly willing to do that. And so it doesn't concern me in terms of bad motive at the athlete level. I'm actually more concerned about how a, how a state might utilize this. And I really don't think it's too much to imagine that we, you know, that states will take advantage of these rules in order to, to win at sports. I mean, I wasn't trying to suggest that trans athletes are trying to invade women's sports because of something, you know, divisive or uh, nefarious. I do Mm -hmm. think, though, that it's something that needs to be put on the table that by being mediocre in a category happenstance does not mean that one should then be ushered through sports where, again, this goes back to even psychological development of women and girls. And I have to include women in this because it's not like our psychological life ends when we're 18, um, Mm -hmm. any less or more than men's. And there's something to competition. And those who do say, I'm gonna forego university and spend these years doing this sport. I've known people who do the same in the dance world, for instance, and they go back to university later after their dance career is finished. And there's a reason for this. These are careers that have a shelf life. Mm -hmm. And I do think that 
as a society, as a you know democratic society, hopefully we can have this discussion, as you and I have both seen on Twitter and elsewhere, it's a hard discussion to have without being called four letter words. Mm-hmm. Now, how can we go forward with this given like, you know, you're in Colin's piece was really lovely. It was so respectful. And of course, you know, people are still called names, no matter how respectful they write about the subject, because capitulation seems to me to be the only choice that our side, if I can say, is given. And our side isn't saying trans people should be in a gulag or trans people should never play sports, because of course, it's always posited that way. Trans women have a right to sports. Well, no one's saying that, they, that these people should not do sports. We're simply saying, let's create a modality that they can do their sports and women and girls can also have theirs. Why is that causing such a stick? Because it is, even when the options are laid out to have third and fourth and fifth possibilities. Well, I think you'll be far better at analysing this than than I am. I think we're we're looking at uh, uh, repeats or or perhaps a a mindset that we've never really escaped where females, where women are viewed as non-men. And, you know, the the basis of uh, attempts to control women, to engineer a society where women are... uh, pushed down to to below, you know, the kind of male ideal. Um, uh, I say that in quotation marks. Um, and and so is this is this not another arm of that? And and it's a it's a very startling, not not arrived at before idea, which is if we can't control those pesky women because you know they, they've been fighting hard to be recognized as equals in society. Well, let's just let's just remove them as a class. It's it's I, don't, I mean, you know, without evoking very hyperbolic language, it's 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 kind of existential now, isn't it? Rather than someone justifying that women, for example, shouldn't vote because of X, Y and Z. It's now just saying, well, actually, we, we we as a society have had to give you a vote, but now we're going to pretend that you don't exist. It's a very it's a much deeper attack on on a, a sex class rather than denying them a particular service. It's it's denying their existence, and it just seems to me that this is the way that a, a patriarchy in a modern society, which largely doesn't permit you know discrimination and that kind of thing, that this is a way of like I say, a backdoor attack. And, and, and it's on the surface, and going back to what you were talking about in terms of kind of queer theory and that kind of stuff, it's, it's reasonably kind of, I don't, I don't think it's an attractive uh, strategy to defeat discrimination, but I do think that some of the proponents here genuinely believe the best way to prevent discrimination of females and perhaps in very limited circumstances against males. But the way to the way to make sure that females kind of get their due is to to break to entirely break down the barriers between males and females and to to act as if these two groups of people are not any different. And I think for some that's probably a genuine strategy to address um, you know, the, the worldwide um, disparity between male and female outcomes and, and treatment. Um, I think then many 
honestly, many males have viewed this as a cause that they can hijack in order to just promote their own desires, their own kind of aims regarding women, uh, which are fundamentally based in misogyny. So, so I think it, it has, you know, breaking down the, this idea that there is some kind of separation between males and females at a social level has some value, but I don't think it's being used as an honest uh, conversation now. I think it's become, it's become this kind of monster where, where, it's, where it's being weaponized.